Please open your Bibles to uh, John chapter 4. John chapter 4. And this morning for the fifth week and the final week, we'll be looking at the first 44 verses of chapter 4. makes up the uh, near totality of the chapter. Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman at the well. And then his subsequent encounter with the Samaritans from the village of Sychar. His stay there and the great pronouncement they make. Now when we first started, I read all... 44 verses, and I'd like to do that again now as we close this section. It's a unit that comes to a glorious crescendo with the announcement, the Christological declaration, we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. So let's begin reading John chapter 4, verses 1 through 44. Now, when Jesus learned the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Joseph had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. And it was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it was, that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his son and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you've had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. But what you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ, when he comes He will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you 
am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, What do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him anything to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you've said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. After two days he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. Lord God, as we study these last verses, I pray that you would give us insight and clarity that we too might see in your Son and be equally convinced that this is indeed the Savior of the world, and not just the Savior of the world abstractly, but our individual Savior, my Savior. Lord, we praise you that you have sent a Savior, not just for Jews, but for Gentiles, for all types of people. So, Lord, give the increase and the growth as we read your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So, in our study of this text, we began by considering the background of Samaria, that without break, without interruption, it is one of rebellion, idolatry, wickedness, corruption, violence, iniquity, judgment. Then, as they're carried away, the remnants intermarry with the pagans. They, they combine pagan worship with the worship of the Lord. They're only holding to the books of Moses. They hinder the rebuilding of the temple. The Jews have a lot of reasons to dislike the Samaritans. Jesus talking to this woman is not a lesson in the misunderstood nice people, but rather the amazing, gracious, condescending, humble Messiah. That's the first point. Not only that, but this woman is not just a Samaritan, but she's, she's a sinful Samaritan woman. She's been divorced five times, almost certainly culpable for those. We can't be certain, but we know right now she's living immorally with a man, quite possibly an adulteress. She comes to a, a well in the Middle East at high noon, presumably, to avoid other townspeople, so an outcast or a pariah even of the Samaritans. And again, the point isn't the misunderstood nice woman, but the amazing Savior the gracious Savior who reaches out with good news and salvation to the worst of people. And Jesus reveals, amazingly, his identity to her. 
in, in a statement unparalleled in the Gospels, he, he plainly and clearly says, I am the Messiah. It, it's striking. This is the question they're still asking him, even up to the trial. Tell us plainly in the Gospels. Here he, nowhere more plainly than here, declares his Messiahship. And we see how he pursues her in conversation, how he wins her, how he pricks her conscience, how he instructs her. And then we saw her leave. And then last week, we considered Jesus' instruction to the disciples. The disciples thought the harvest still was four months off. They weren't in a ministry mindset, even though Jesus had sent them into the town in Sychar. And even though they'd interacted with these people, bought food from them, they didn't view them as a potential ministry for harvest. They had been baptizing in Judea. They had been doing ministry. They were traveling to Galilee, and it's quite possible I suggested they were thinking this was a time out while they were traveling, getting ready for more work to do in Galilee. And Jesus tells them, it's picturesque. We're told that the Samaritans are coming to him. And we know that in the Middle East, people regularly are wearing white or light-colored clothing so as to reduce heat. He says, lift up your eyes, look and see the harvest is white. He's, Here comes the town. Jesus sent them to the town, and they didn't see. So when the town comes to them, comes to Jesus, Jesus tells them, now, look up your eyes. See, there's a harvest. Work. Reap. Receive your reward. Well, now the text picks up with the Samaritans arriving at Jesus. The disciples drop out now. He's taught them. And the actions get to center around them and what they say and what they confess And then it's going to end with Jesus leaving and the given reason for why he departs. The disciples won't reappear until chapter 6. So let's look at this in three parts. This is indeed the Savior of the world. That's the climactic declaration the Samaritans give. But first we're going to look at a fruitful harvest. A fruitful harvest. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed two days, and many more believed because of his word. Now what's striking is the redundancy here. Um, Just a few verses earlier, we, we saw John gave us the exact quote of what the woman said, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. He repeats it here, which means he's emphasizing something. He wants to make it abundantly clear the effect the fruitfulness and the harvest from this woman's testimony. He, he doesn't want to get through with this account without giving her credit for her faithful witness and for us to see the fruitfulness of that witness. When something is repeated, when there's repetition, is to emphasize something. And so even though it's just a few verses after he said it, he repeats it. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. And lest we forget what that testimony was, he told me all that I ever did. This is amazing. Even though John may not have seen a harvest at this time here when he was with Jesus, now, many years later, he does. And he highlights her faithfulness and her witness, and forever it's recorded in Scripture that she witnessed what she knew, and it was fruitful. People came to faith, which means, point one, her sinful past did not nullify her witness. Now, we we are frequently tempted to think that because of the, the lack of righteousness in our lives because of our past, we might be disqualified from telling someone about Jesus. John is singling out. This is, 
I would suggest you the least likely person you would pick. If you could pick any Samaritan in the village of Sychar, you would not pick this woman to be your witness, your representative for Jesus. This is who Jesus picked. This is who God chose. This is where the harvest began. And John wants to make it clear, she will get credit for her work. Jesus has already said, already the one who is reaping is receiving wages. This woman will be receiving wages in eternity for her work, the credit she gets. And understand, she doesn't know everything about Jesus. She she says what she knows. If they were to ask her questions, they'd likely stump her. Well, where is he from? She doesn't know. Is he a Davidite? She doesn't know. How is he the savior? She doesn't know. What she does know is she confesses. I met a man who told me all I ever knew. He has supernatural knowledge. I think he might be the Christ. Let's come and see. And that's good enough. She says what she knows. She points people to Jesus. Her next point, she pointed them to Jesus. One of the reasons why her sinful past didn't limit her is she wasn't primarily speaking about herself. She was talking about another the, the witness, we saw this as John the Baptist, isn't talking about himself. He's pointing people to Jesus. You can be a nothing and a nobody and point people to Jesus. In fact, Paul in 1 Corinthians highlights the fact that very often it pleases God to work precisely this way. So often, I mentioned this last week, so often we think if only this celebrity, this athlete, this politician, this notable person would become a Christian and join our cause, then things would start to happen. And so we get excited when we hear rumors of an actor or a celebrity getting saved. And, and praise God when people get saved. But let, let me read to you what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 29. This is not the way God normally works. It is unusual when God starts revival, starts work through celebrities and famous people. He says this, Consider your calling, my brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful not many of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. Don't miss the purpose in that statement. God intends to shame the wise with the foolish things in this world. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God didn't choose Nicodemus to be the witness. Nicodemus thought too highly of himself. Nicodemus thought too highly of his own ability. He will become humbled. He will eventually be convicted and go forward publicly as a disciple of Jesus. But we see Jesus take Nicodemus head on. Unless you're born again, you can't even see Nicodemus. You can't even hear In the very next chapter, not the teacher of Israel, not the Pharisee, not the ruler, not the man everyone thought well of, but this woman, five times married, cohabitating with her boyfriend. This woman is the person God chooses to show the power of his gospel, and she reaps a harvest. She's a harvest worker. God uses her for ministry. Praise God that he can use broken, sinful people like you and me. And she pointed them to Jesus. Point two, the effect of their faith. One of the other things that's being highlighted here is the faith of these Samaritans. And as I've already suggested to you, John in his gospel has faith and then he has faith. We've already raised up the and considered the strange last paragraph of chapter two while Jesus was in Jerusalem. J- John two twenty. 
23 to 25. While Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. So there's something people can do that you can call faith or believe, apparently in John's gospel, that doesn't benefit you. And so what can we learn about genuine faith from these Samaritans? These Samaritans in this town is going to be set up as a foil, a contrast with Galilee in the rest of this chapter. Jesus has a rebuke for Galilee when he gets there. When when the nobleman sends to him and asks him to heal his son, look at at chapter 4, verse 48. Actually, pick it up even, start at verse 45. Because it harkens back to Jerusalem and the miracles Jesus did. It harkens back to that strange passage at the end of chapter 2. Verse 45, So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. For they too had gone to the feast. That's the link at the end of chapter 2. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water into wine. There's another link back. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. But the you there is plural. My Bible's got a footnote saying that. Jesus is indicting the Galileans, all of them. He's not pleased, even though we're told that they welcomed him. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And that's going to come to a point in John chapter 6. So the Samaritans are put here as a foil. Understand, in John's gospel, this is the only unqualified success. No opposition. No controversy. Just unqualified success. This is the high point in John's gospel for Jesus' public ministry. This is as good as it gets, and it never gets this good again. And, and the point that this is not in Jerusalem, not in Israel, not in his hometown, but in dirty, filthy, faithless Samaria. Oh, that point is meant to be made clearly. This is humbling to the Jews reading John's gospel. It ought to be, and ought to be humbling to us. They asked Jesus to remain with them. That's the mark of their faith, I believe. They're not interested in signs and miracles. They just want to spend time with Jesus. They want him to stay there. What the ESV translates... um, they asked him to stay with them. It's the same word used in John 15, abide or remain. They want Jesus to remain. They want him to stay there. They want to be with Jesus. They want to learn from Jesus, and they want Jesus to be with them. They remain with Jesus. Next, their faith desired to be with and to know him more. And I'd already highlighted to you that the the Samaritan's expectation, we saw this from the woman at the well, is not a conquering Messiah, as the Jews had, but a teaching Messiah coming out of Deuteronomy 18. Deuteronomy 18, 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. It is to him that you shall listen. And then in verses 18 and 19, I will raise up for them, a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I'll put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him, and whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. And so we saw the woman say, when Messiah comes, he will tell us all things. She's linking Messiah to this individual. 
She's right. The prophet is the Messiah, is the son, is the king. And so they're expecting a teaching Messiah. And so they want Jesus to remain with them, presumably, and instruct them. Note their faith, but also note Jesus' compassion. Jesus' compassion. We'll deal with at the end of this message why why Jesus didn't stay, why he had to go to Galilee. But what we do know from the other Gospels is his mission was primarily to go to Israel. And he delays, he stays. The fact that he stays at all is a wonderful act of kindness. They want him to remain, and I would take that to mean almost indefinitely, but he, he stays two days. He stays with them. Two days with Jesus. Two days in this town, halting his plans. What, what kindness, what compassion, what love Jesus has for them. He remains with them two days. And because of that, now many more believe because of Jesus' word. It starts as a fruitful harvest just from the woman And then that rolls and snowballs into an even more fruitful harvest as these people meet with and listen to and hear Jesus. Now note the emphasized words. What was it about Jesus that impressed them? And many more believed because of his word. The emphasis here is Jesus' teaching, Jesus' word, over against the Galileans who want to see signs and miracles. The, the, The striking feature of their faith What compels them? What is the cause of their great confession? Did they see some great work? Did they see some great miracle? No, they heard his word. And just as later in John's gospel, an officer will come back empty-handed to the Sanhedrin and they say, why didn't you arrest him? No one ever spoke like this man. The, The defining mark of Jesus in the gospels is his teaching authority. He did not teach like the scribes or the Pharisees. He taught as one having authority. It's Jesus' word. And that gets even emphasized in verse 42 when they say it's no longer because of what you said we believe, for we have heard for ourselves. So Jesus' word and them hearing it is what creates their faith. That's the contrast with the people in Jerusalem and the people in Galilee who want miracles. These are people hearing Jesus' word, and that becomes the crux of their faith. Many more believed because of Jesus' word, which means then they did receive him as they should receive the prophet. If you remember the the warning from Deuteronomy, you shall listen to him, you shall pay attention to him, don't let his word fall to the ground. This is also, in contrast, what Nicodemus and those he represented did not do. Turn back to chapter 3. The contrast of these Samaritans with those around them in chapter 3 and the Galileans at the end of 4 is, is clear. What is Jesus' charge to Nicodemus? How do we know in John 3 Nicodemus is not a believer, as I've contended? Because Jesus says so. 3.11 Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you all, plural, do not receive our testimony. If, you, if I have told you earthly things and you all do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you all heavenly things? So right there from Jesus' own lips, Nicodemus and those he stands in front of, those he represents, those behind him, have not received Jesus' testimony. They do not believe what Jesus says. And in striking contrast, John highlights the Pharisees. He could have... I mean. Right now, I know there's a the video series people are watching that the danger of, of imaging Jesus isn't fundamentally, I think, about the Ten Commandments, but it's taking the attention away from what he said. We know very little of what Jesus looked like. 
The Gospels don't describe him. Was he tall? Was he short? We know he had a seamless garment. We don't really know much else. What color were his eyes? Don't know. Was he left-handed or right-handed? Don't know. The emphasis is on his words, his speech, what he said. That's the emphasis here. And the, and the, the danger can be that we get captivated by an attractive actor, a loving smile, a twinkle in an eye that may or may not have been there. We don't know because God didn't see fit to tell us. But the emphasis in the Gospels is on the words coming out of his mouth. Many more believed because of his word. John leaves no doubt in our minds what was the decisive element in this greater harvest, Jesus' word or words, what he said. Okay? They received and believed Jesus' testimony. That's the point. They received and believed Jesus' testimony in stark contrast to Nicodemus and the Jews in Jerusalem who do not receive or did not receive and did not believe what Jesus said. Okay? Conversely then, Jesus entrusted himself to them. And how do we know that? Because he stayed two days. So that's the contrast. At the end of chapter 2, when Jesus is in Jerusalem, many believed in him when they saw the works that he was doing, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all men and needed no one to testify concerning men. Here they believe, not because of signs and miracles, but because of what he said, and Jesus stays two days with them. So that's part of the contrast as well. Part of the contrast. Also, incidentally, look back at 421. Jesus said to the woman, remember? The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. And that you is plural. Will you all worship the Father? Oh, it was so much sooner and closer than she had known. This whole town is believing. This whole town is therefore presumably worshiping the Father through their knowledge of Jesus. Okay. That leads us then um, from point one to a profound confession. A profound confession. Now the first thing you notice, the Samaritan's faith has increased. Again, in John's gospel, people are said to believe, then later they're said to believe again. We saw in chapter one how um, the original disciples are called and they believe. Jesus even can, um, speaks highly of Nathaniel because do you believe because I said it before? I called you, I spoke to you, I saw you under the tree. But then in chapter 2, after Jesus turns the water into wine, his disciples beheld his glory and they believed. Presumably more faith. That same thing happens here. They believed because of the woman and now they believe because of even more reasons. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Their faith has increased. Their faith has increased. Now, you might initially think that that statement to the woman, we no longer believe because of what you said, might be taken as a slap in the face. What, is she no longer getting credit? No, of course not. John's already stressed the credit she gets. But when you and I witness, we don't want people's faith ultimately to rest on us and even what we have said. Even as you can tell people about how Jesus has changed your life, about how the effects of your encounters with him and his word. You want people's faith ultimately to rest on Jesus. And that's exactly what we see here. They no longer believe because of the woman, but their faith now rests directly in Jesus himself. Their faith now rests directly in Jesus himself because they've heard what he said. Then notice where they put the emphasis. We ourselves have heard. 
That's the decisive factor. It's not we ourselves have seen. We ourselves have heard. The woman bore faithful witness to what she knew, but let's face it, she did not have a very developed understanding of Jesus. Now, part of John's point is that's fine. Take what you know about Jesus and share it. Don't let your smallness, your bad reputation, your stigma stop you. God, God frequently is pleased to use foolish things, small things, weak things, despised things to shame the strong and the powerful and the wise. So don't, don't let any of your perceived ignorance, any of your perceived weakness stop you in sharing good news, partaking in the harvest that's going on. But ultimately, people's faith needs to rest in Jesus himself, which is what we see here. And so what we're seeing is that the harvest is being finished. This woman was faithful for her part. She spoke of what she knew. And Jesus, in the two days that he stayed there, finished the harvest of these people. And he spoke to them, and his word became compelling. We ourselves, we have heard ourselves, for we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Hearing Jesus left them with certainty. Hearing Jesus left them with certainty. What will you do with Jesus' words? How you respond to Jesus' words? But here they heard him. That's also, when we get to chapter 6, why Peter and the disciples don't depart. Remember, Jesus says some very hard things in John 6. And many of his disciples leave. They don't like his words. They don't like his teaching. This is a hard saying. And he turns to the disciples and he says, what, do you want to go away also? Jesus is very seeker sensitive. And he, that's a joke. It's okay. Uh, no, there are times where Jesus can be very angular, very hard. He's, do you want to go away also? And what does Peter say? I don't think Peter has the slightest understanding what Jesus has just said about eating his flesh, drinking his blood. Where else should we go? You alone have the words of life. I'm not sure what to make of what you just said, but it's life. It's light. That's the mark of disciples. Jesus' words are authenticating. They're powerful. They're life and light. These men and women in Sychar have heard Jesus and hearing his teaching and his word, their faith, their faith now rests directly in Jesus. It's given them certainty. And now that becomes the foundation for their profound statement. Now, in John's gospel, some remarkable statements of Jesus' deity and his identity have been made. I'll highlight a few of them. John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word is with God, and the Word was God. Wow, the deity of Jesus opening this gospel. Or, one eighteen. no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Or, John the Baptist's testimony, verse 29 of chapter 1. Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Ah, it's a wonderful confession. Or whether it's Andrew, Peter's brother, we have found the Messiah, verse 41. But so far, the, the, the stress has been on Jesus as a Jewish Messiah. The, the action's been in Israel. This is the one of whom Moses and the prophets spoke. Now we get this amazing statement. We know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. This is profound. Now, don't let our familiarity with this blunt the, the impact of this declaration. Um, 
Jesus is, and I think there's two things that are meant here. You can make the emphasis on this declaration one of two ways. The emphasis can fall on the world or this one. Um, This person is the savior of the world. If you put the emphasis on the world, you end up with hearing, um, sorry, Jesus is a savior for all peoples. Jesus is a savior for all peoples. When Samaritans say this is the savior of the world, that's, that's the emphasis. John's gospel can speak of the world in a lot of different ways. Um, in John 3.16, it's the world fundamentally is opposed to God, is a, a realm of darkness. It, in John 20, the world can just be a big place. The world wouldn't have enough space for all the things you could write about Jesus. But it, on, the mouths of, on the lips of Samaritans, world clearly means beyond Israel, the ethne, the peoples. And so these Samaritans confess that Jesus is the Savior, not just of Israel, but of all peoples. All peoples. This point is made emphatically in John. T- turn over to John 11. We got, we got time. Turn over to John 11. Forty-eight. We get um, access to the inner discussions of the uh, Jesus' opponents, the Pharisees, and they reason: if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, "You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it's better for you that one man should die for the people." not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. Now, he, he didn't speak of his own accord. He didn't get that. The Holy Spirit, because he was high priest, gave him that insight. But the Samaritans get it. Jesus is not a regional savior. He's not a savior for one group of people and not another. This is the Savior for all peoples. Republicans and Democrats, Americans, Canadians, whatever, fill in your blank. This is the Savior for every people group. And we know in the book of Revelation, there is going to be a representative from every tribe, people, and tongue praising the risen Lamb. This is the Savior for all peoples. But also, the the Greek instruction's emphatic, this one, This particular one. And the emphasis here being, this is the only Savior for the world. The world has a Savior. The world has one Savior. Even as those who he is able to save is broad, the options for salvation are narrow. Jesus himself says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And we saw Jesus when he was tested or challenged by this woman. Which mountain? Even as he reaches out that olive branch, believe me, in short order, you all are going to worship the Father, neither here nor there. But he does answer the question because truth matters. Not all religions get to the same place. Not all ways lead to heaven. This and this one only is the Savior of the world. So even though there's a broadness in the gospel offer, Gospel message is narrow and precise. There's one Savior, one mediator between man and God. This one is the Savior of the world. 
which then brings us, with what time we have left, to a tragic departure. A tragic departure. Now this is a really interesting and potentially problematic text. So much so that one of the major translations eliminates the problem by getting rid of the coordinating conjunctions. But they're critical. But work through this in, uh, in John 4, 42 uh, no, 43 and 44. After two days, Jesus departed for Galilee. Four. That four is critical. It's absolutely in the Greek text. Your Bible should say four. If not, you can just write it in the margin or something. John tells us why Jesus left. Why did Jesus not stay longer? They wanted him to remain with them. Four. Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. And then we'll pick this up next week at verse 45, but there's another coordinating conjunction there. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. So John has just explained to us why is it that Jesus didn't stay longer? Why, why did he leave after two days? Well, it's because he had already testified a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown. So when he came to Galilee, they welcomed him. And that's not obviously intuitive. Work through that. How does that logic, how does that rationale work? I think it only works one way. So let's just take this slowly because I think when you understand why Jesus is leaving, the tragedy and the contrast will even be more heightened between these Samaritans and the Galileans. Um, The first difficulty is the fact that nowhere in John's gospel does Jesus say this proverb. He says it in all three of the synoptics. This could be a reference to the other Gospels. Remember, I argued at the beginning that John wrote last, and he wrote aware of the other Gospels. He's already referenced this was before John was arrested. He's already assumed his audience is familiar with the accounts. So I don't know whether John is referencing the oral tradition of what Jesus said or if he's actually referencing possibly even Matthew. But in, in, in the synoptics, it's, it's taken to be clearly Nazareth, his hometown. But the Greek is just literally the fatherland. And so I think here the contrast is clearly with Galilee, but even more particularly, and I'll read D.A. Carson on this point, uh, a more plausible interpretation identifies hometown or homeland with Galilee. Indeed, not just Galilee, but with Galilee as it represents Jewish soil over against Samaritan soil. So Carson's suggesting, I think Carson's right, that the proverb is not particularly Nazareth, which is nowhere in view here, but rather hometown soil, Israel versus Samaria. Israel versus Samaria, with Galilee being the representation of of Israel. Jesus' own country, Carson writes, then is Galilee and Judea, Jewish turf as opposed to Samaria, for which he has just come. In Samaria, Jesus has just enjoyed his first unqualified, unopposed, and open-hearted success. Now he returns to his own people. So that first piece. Jesus doesn't stay with the Samaritans because he himself had testified a prophet has no honor in his hometown. I'm, first piece, I'm saying his hometown is Israel. prophet has no honor in Israel. Jesus left the Samaritans because he himself had said a prophet has no honor in his hometown. So, so what's it saying? Well, in John's gospel already, we've learned... Jesus ultimately will be lifted up. He he says that to Nicodemus in chapter 3. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. So Jesus is aware he is to be crucified. 
That's his hour. The reason he doesn't turn the water into wine publicly is because he doesn't want to hasten the cross. He says, woman, my hour is not yet. In John's gospel, it's his miracles, we saw that in 11, that force his um, opponents to, to settle on just putting him to death. So Jesus has come to be crucified, and yet in Samaria, here's your first blank, he left because the Samaritans had honored him. He'd received nothing but honor, unqualified success, no opposition, no ignominy, no opponents. What I think John is saying is he left because he would have to go to his homeland in order to be rejected and crucified. I I can't stay here because you guys are treating me too well. And I need to be lifted up on a pole to die for the sins of my people, not just Israel, but from the Gentiles, the Goyim. I think that's what John's saying. He left after two days. Why? Because he himself had testified a prophet has no honor in his hometown. If I want to be dishonored, I got to go to Israel. <sighs> what a striking, striking statement against Jewish pride. Now, if, if I'm right, then I've got to explain the fact that in 45, the Galileans welcomed him because this is connected. Again, so when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. And if what I've said is right, then wouldn't we expect something like dishonor? I mean, that, that would make sense. Jesus left because a prophet only receives dishonor in his hometown. I came to be dishonored. I came to be humbled and crucified. I got to go to Israel. Then, Pastor Jeremy, how, how can John say they welcomed him? Well, I think there's some subtle irony to that welcome. Notice the direct link of language in 45 with the end of chapter 2. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. And we already studied and saw and know what Jesus thinks of faith that comes from seeing miracles at the feast. Nicodemus showed up, Rabbi, we know you're from God. Yes, we do. For no one can do the signs you do unless God is with him. And Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you're born again, you can't even see the kingdom of God. Jesus did not entrust himself to the Jews in Jerusalem who saw miracles and believed. So already there's a mark that perhaps this welcome is lacking, insufficient. And then it's confirmed with Jesus' rebuke in verse 48. It's in the plural you, all y'all. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. So even though the text says they welcomed him, Jesus finds something in that welcome and something in their atmosphere lacking and displeasing that he rebukes. Let me read one last bit from Carson on this. Jesus himself had declared that a prophet has no honor in his home country, unlike the reception he enjoyed in Samaria. And he determined and knowingly heads in that direction. Therefore, when he arrives, the Galileans welcome him, not as Messiah, but because they'd seen all that he'd done at the Passover feast in Jerusalem, John has already let his readers know how Jesus viewed that kind of faith, that kind of welcome. What this means is that when John tells us the Galileans welcome him, the context he develops shows that here, as so often, he is writing with deep irony. Now, the Samaritans are a foil. They received his word. They believed. Their faith grows. They want Jesus to stay with them. They confess. They understand. This is the Savior of the world. And Jesus doesn't stay with them. Because he's come to be rejected. And if he's going to be rejected, he's going to have to go to his own people. He's going to have to go to the religious Jewish people. 
And we see notes, even in their welcome, that their understanding is superficial, that their admiration, that their, their cheering and their welcome is conditional on what Jesus can do for them and show for them. And by chapter 6, they're going to fall away in droves, and later in the gospel, they'll be crying out for his blood. So that brings us then to a closing point to, to, to consider how, how will you respond to Jesus? Jesus has made responding to him in his words the critical point. It was what he rebuked Nicodemus and those who stood behind him for. You don't receive my word. You don't believe what I say. And it's what the Samaritans here are commended for. And so the question I think John puts out for us, the reader, is will we respond like the Samaritans? What Jesus says is his truth, his, his life, is light. And we receive it and we believe it. Or do we receive Jesus like the Galileans? If Jesus will do stuff for me, work miracles in my life, well, then I'll welcome him, sure. Yeah, I could use a better job. I could use blessings in my life. And, and I'm not trying to minimize the fact that Christians regularly experience blessings from the Lord in their life. Receive him as God's prophet, the one who speaks truth, as the divine lawgiver, as the son of God, as the savior of the world. That's what John puts up. He puts up these lowly Samaritans as an example of sincere and genuine faith and contrasts it with the fickle Galilean welcome that's really excited to see another miracle show. And that's the challenge he lays out for us. Um, I believe we have time for a closing song. Let me close with a word of prayer. Lord God, I... I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that we would receive Jesus truly as he is for who he is, not as someone to augment our life and give it zip, but as the Savior, our Savior, our sin-bearer, our sacrifice, our God, our King, our Messiah. In Jesus' name, amen.